Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We start today with the latest on China state interference in Canadian elections. And this one really heating up now in Ottawa in the last hour. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's chief of staff, Katie Telford, has agreed to testify now in front of a House of Commons committee on what she knew about a China state interference in elections in Canada or what the Prime Minister's office had been told by CSIS, Canada's spy agency. I'll tell you, the Liberals have been fighting this, resisting it, filibustering, doing everything they can here to prevent Katie Telford from testifying, but they have relented now. There was a crucial vote on this scheduled in the House of Commons this afternoon uh, that may have... Uh, been the final straw here. So that is the latest development on this story in Ottawa. Meanwhile, closer to home, we've got the recent allegations of China state interference in the municipal election here in Vancouver. I've got former Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart standing by to discuss here. Have a listen to the new mayor, Ken Sim, after these uh, reports broke about China interference in the election that he won last year. Have a listen. If I was uh, a Caucasian um, male, we're not having this conversation. If there's proof of foreign interference in our election, I want to know about it because I'm a Canadian. I was born here. I was raised here. I went to school here. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Kennedy Stewart, the former mayor of Vancouver, now at Simon Fraser University. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Kennedy, thank you very much for coming on today. Hey, Mike. Great to be here. Okay, I really appreciate it. And this story has been kind of shocking in Vancouver, broken by by the Globe and Mail, uh, reporting about state interference by the consulate in Vancouver in the election last year that you lost to Ken Sim. And let's talk about that now, because you say that you were aware of this, right? You were aware that there was this kind of interference going on, correct? Yeah, I mean, how this story came about is, is uh, you know, I've been kind of minding my own business at Simon Fraser, getting on with my new life. And uh, the one of the editors that contacted me and said they had all these CSIS documents uh, that were leaked to them by a whistleblower and that uh, I was in these documents. And they wondered if I would like to talk about this. So I met and uh, I didn't really want to get involved with this, but... Um, Anyway, they, they run the story. They, they read me a bunch of quotes uh, from what sound like wiretaps, um, that uh, recordings of the uh, Consul General talking to various parties, including, I was told, um, sitting councillors, which I thought was pretty alarming. Uh, and so I went on the record and, and kind of told that they asked me a bunch of questions about what I knew. Um, the main thing they were unaware of is that uh, before the election, prior to the election in May uh, 2022, uh, CSIS had contacted me at, at the mayor's office to, and asked me to meet. I met with them, and they spent about two hours going over, um, uh, telling me generally about what foreign interference uh, looks like in local politics, asking me a ton of questions about uh you know, had I noticed any suspicious activity and, you know, I, I I don't know, I was really busy at that point, so I wasn't really thinking about spies. Uh, 
And but then finally I asked them, well, why I asked CSIS, why did you contact me? And they said, well, we have we've been gathering all this information that's concerning and they've been sending it up the chain and nobody's paying any attention. Um, I did tell them finally that, you know, this meeting would be uh, the public would know I've had this meeting because my calendar is public. And what should I say? And they didn't have any suggestions, but did not at all seem alarmed that this would become public. So that's kind of my two touch points with this story. Okay, that's very interesting that these CSIS officials would say that to you, that they had been sounding the alarm on this internally, it sounds like, and no one seemed to want to do anything about it. Was that your impression, yeah. that they were frustrated? Yeah. Yeah, and, I, and you know, but you know, what I, the thing is, CSIS asks you a lot of questions. If you ask CSIS a question, they don't, they don't answer you back, right? So, yeah. so I don't know who they were sending these reports to, but I do know... That, you know, there were two uh, people in the room. One guy uh, was some kind of senior uh, regional uh, CSIS person, and the other was a China desk uh, specialist. And they were they were only concerned about China. Like, there was no – they weren't saying there was Russian interference or Iranian interference or something. It was – it was the Chinese state that they were concerned about. Right. When you told, when you said that the Globe and Mail had disclosed to you that they were aware of what appeared to be wiretap transcripts here of uh, China Chinese officials speaking to, did you say sitting sitting members of city council were on these yeah. wiretaps? Yeah, they they well, like it's hard it's hard to really understand what's going on because when I was talking to the. To the editor, uh, McDougall is the editor. Um, you know, they read me paraphrased uh, portions of the uh, of the report. They didn't show me any reports, and the and they were from the consul general herself. Um, and but they they were quoting her, so I thought, well, how is this possible? And it's some kind of recording of her. And then uh, there oh. were a couple a couple of these conversations and. And the, uh, the, you know, whether the Globe Mail got this wrong and they were telling me or whether they, you know, changed their minds or something. But in the initial meeting, I was told that it was uh, sitting councillors that were included. In which which, count, which councillors are we talking about here? They didn't say. They didn't, oh, it was boy. People, it was from the last council, though. It wasn't yeah. the council. Right. Speaking of former Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart, you, you've been quite open to that. The election that you lost last year to Ken Sim, you lost by a very large margin. You don't believe that any kind of state interference by China or by the Chinese consulate in Vancouver caused you to lose the election. Is that right? Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah. I, I I don't think it would have been uh, enough interference to 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 make up that vote total. Although I do think that some of the councillors that ran with me, some of the councillor candidates, were much much closer. So it it may have cost them mm. seats. But uh, wow. That's, I think, what a you know a probe should look into, right? I mean, that's yeah. uh, and and you know, I'm a, I'm a prophet as a few now. I don't have any ability to look into this, nor did I as mayor. Uh, so really, the other thing is that if there is interference, it, it broke our local election law here. If if there were resources used in a campaign that were not reported to Elections British Columbia, I mean, that's illegal activity that that the province should be looking into, and then the Fed should be looking into the the more uh, cloak-and-dagger stuff. Right. You had been critical of Chinese policy, Chinese government policy on issues like Taiwan, for example. Mm -hmm. I recall that the city of Vancouver had been looking into establishing a friendship city with a city yep. in Taiwan. Do you believe that 
that that bothered the, the the Chinese government, the Chinese consulate in Vancouver, and maybe that resulted in the in the uh, interference. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in fact, the the consul general who has, has since left uh, was yeah. openly criticizing me. I mean, you can look at newspaper reports where she's essentially uh, warning me of repercussions if we go ahead with this uh, friendship city and. You know, uh, went to a number of public events, uh, large public events where the consul general would be speaking, and she would openly denounce the prime minister and the government. Uh, you know, um, and you know, I'd be sitting there with other elected officials uh, from uh, at least the provincial level. The police were there. You know, police officers were there, and I just thought, how is this person allowed to stay here in Canada when she's actively going around to events talking about? how terrible our government is. I mean, that is so aggressive and not something a diplomat should do. So there are the, the tensions between us uh, got uh, quite high. I cut off any communication with the, consul, the consulate. I do talk to other consulates, just so you know, like I did as mayor, talk to all kinds of consul generals all the time and help them to sort out local or international problems. But I just had enough with this, especially after they kidnapped uh, the two Michaels uh, and then threatened parliamentarians with arrest yeah. if they visit China. I mean, that's just way out of line. And, and you know, I'm glad she's gone. Okay, last question for you. The Prime Minister has appointed a special rapporteur, as he's called, David Johnston, the former uh, Governor General, to get to the bottom of this. We've just heard here this morning that Katie Telford, his his chief of staff will testify in front of a commons committee. Are you are you confident this will get to the bottom of this, or do you think we need a full public inquiry? I, I like this initial move by the prime minister to to uh, to, to have a qu- somebody that's trusted. I mean, although that's under debate now, but somebody that's as trusted as you can be trusted in these circumstances to 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 scope out what's really going on and what an inquiry would look like. Uh, so I think that initial move was good. I thought the the uh, the person that they chose, who I've met on a number of occasions, because I was an MP uh, while he was Governor General, so I think that's a good choice. But I do think inevitably we will get to some kind of inquiry, and I would hope that it would have some ability to subpoena people. It can't just be going through and looking at records. I think we need people to testify. You know what they what they knew, what they didn't know, uh, and just to clear this whole thing up and to take measures so it doesn't happen again. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. No problem at all. The impact on individuals who choose to step forward and serve their communities, like Ken Sims, being attacked by allegations that are incomplete and leaked that he can't even really respond to. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking about the reports on China state interference in the municipal election in Vancouver. The latest wrinkle on this. You heard my conversation there with former Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart, who lost to Ken Sim in that election last year. Lots of breaking developments on this story. In, in Ottawa, the Prime Minister Chief of, Chief of Staff, Katie Telford, has now agreed to testify in front of a House of Commons committee on foreign interference. The Liberals had been resisting that and filibustering it for many days here. Let's check in with Brad West now, the Mayor of Port Coquitlam. Very pleased to welcome him back. Brad, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, local interference in our elections here. This is a new one for a lot of people. These reports, do they surprise you at all that this kind of interference was apparently happening right in Vancouver? 
No, it doesn't surprise me. And I think we're just scratching the surface. Uh, this is tip of the iceberg stuff. I think most people will know that I've been very strong and outspoken on this for a number of years because I came face to face with it when I uh, was a newly elected mayor of Port Coquitlam uh, attending the Union of BC Municipalities Conference, which uh, is an organization that represents all mayors and city councillors in British Columbia. And uh, that organization was, in fact, taking financial sponsorship from the government of China in exchange for providing access to elected officials uh, right across this province. This was happening, Mike, at the same time that two of our fellow citizens were being held hostage and subject to God knows what. It was happening at a time when it was very clear to everyone that the government of China was engaged in a very coordinated and methodical campaign to expand their influence and pursuing an agenda that's incredibly hostile to the interests of Canadians. And despite all of that, because there was money on the table, uh, the Union BC Municipalities was accepting a sponsorship, rolling out the red carpet, and you had politicians rubbing shoulders with uh, government of uh, China officials. So uh, this is very real, and and there's a, a number of avenues that it takes. I was fascinated by the conversation I just had with Kennedy Stewart as he described a briefing that he had last year with CSIS officials who warned him about China state interference that was going on in Vancouver. I believe you you have received CSIS briefings as well. Is that correct? That's correct. I, I have over the years, um, and uh, you know uh, uh, they've been really about understanding the the form and fashion that these attempts to grow influence and expand soft power take and and so you know all of this stuff by the way is right in front of our noses and the thing about the government of china is they're very open about their intentions i mean if anyone does any amount of reading um you know use google for god's sakes you can figure out pretty quick that whether it be through the United Front uh, Works Department uh, or, or just the speeches that are given by officials in China, they are open about their attempts to gain influence and to build relationships. Right. Uh, you know, another form that it takes that uh, has been stopped in many other jurisdictions but continues in British Columbia is uh, Confucius Institutes. We have Confucius Institutes in British Columbia that have relationships with our school districts where the government of China is tightly controlling curriculum. You know, Mike, the the common denominator in all of this is money. Government of China uh, throws money on the table and there are too many people, too many elected officials, too many uh, people within institutions that are just jumping for that cash. Uh, to be able to fund various programs or what have you. Uh, that's the common denominator. In right. many parts of the world, those Confucius Institutes have been kicked out of the country. We have just one minute left here. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has just released a mandate for the special rapporteur, for former Governor General David Johnston, looking into this. He will have until the end of October to complete a review of this. Do you think that mandate should be expanded to include municipal election interference? we got 30 seconds here, Brett. Uh, absolutely. But I also think the special rapporteur, which is 
something that most people never heard of until uh, a couple of weeks ago, is completely inadequate. I think it's a distraction and a half-hearted attempt to hope that a bigger story comes along and people forget about this. What we need is a full, uh, a full public inquiry with powers to compel people to testify and okay. the potential for criminal charges to flow out of it. Thanks for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right, let's talk about ICBC premiums for young drivers. Now, remember, auto insurance premiums went down in BC after the province brought in no-fault insurance. A lot of people noticed that, I'm sure. Now, no-fault, you know, there's two sides to that coin, too. I've talked to people who have been seriously injured in a collision, and I'm hearing from lots of people who are unhappy with the benefits and coverage that they have received. But... If you are a safe driver, no accidents, most drivers seeing lower premiums. What about young drivers, though? How are they making out? Well, they're still getting walloped. Got a recent report here out now from Ernst & Young taking a look at rates for young drivers across the country. In B.C., yeah, you still pay a lot if you're a young, inexperienced driver. Even if you've got a clean driving record, no accidents, you're still going to get hammered as a young, uh, inexperienced driver. I got CKNW reporter Janet Brown standing by. First, let's have a listen to this report. Global News reporter Julie Nolan. And insurance is not, it's not too nice. I'm paying just around a little bit over 400 right now a month. With other monthly expenses on the rise, it's hard for young drivers like Iman Irbaganje to catch a break. We could put that money into different things, education, stuff like that. Okay, there's one young guy paying 400 bucks a month for his auto insurance. Some young people are paying even more than that. Let's check in with Janet Brown now, CKNW reporter. She's been tweeting about this issue. Very pleased to welcome her back. Hey, Janet. Good morning, Mike. And, you know, you brought this up. Wasn't part of the reform of ICBC or, you know, putting out that so-called dumpster fire, having lower rates for our younger drivers? Remember that whole discussion about the rates that the younger drivers are paying? Well, guess what? It's still pretty high, as you say, for a lot of our young people. And I think part of launching into adulthood is being able to drive, having your driver's license, and ultimately, I think, having a vehicle. And especially if you're a young person going from grade 12 into post-secondary, quite often, if you live in the suburbs, you need a vehicle to get to your post-secondary institution. You need a vehicle to go out with your friends, and it's okay to borrow your parents' vehicles from time to time, but guess what? Your parents need their vehicle if they live in the burbs quite often because they need their vehicle to get to work as well. So it's a real problem, and as you say, I've been looking at some of the numbers for young people. You get your L, and then you get your N, and then you sort of look around and think, hmm, you know, should I get a vehicle? And, And kids work, and they save their money to buy a vehicle, and then they go to purchase a vehicle, and then they go to buy the insurance, and then it's a a big wake-up call for a lot of kids and a lot of parents. Oh, and yeah. my son is in that boat right now. So I've been looking around at some of his friends who have purchased vehicles and now are purchasing insurance. And let me give you an example of some sure. of them. Sure. Yes, please. Uh, one, teen, one teenager purchased a used small truck. Now he's facing an insurance bill of $4,100. Whoa. He's graduating from grade 12. He uh, lives in Langley, uh, going to be going to post-secondary at UBC. You know that long commute, Mike. 
<laughs> a lot of yeah. the parents listening right now know that's a long ways to go. Taking transit is possible, but it's ours taking transit. And if you live on campus or try to get a little apartment near UBC, it's roughly $3,000 a month. So it's much cheaper to actually buy that insurance, even though it's still expensive for that vehicle. Here's another example. A five-year-old Civic Touring two-door Honda, uh, $3,656. But that's with a 10% discount because the car has self-braking technology. Uh, Two other young people, they're both paying $2,500, but they have their parents' name on the insurance. So somehow that lowers their insurance. But still $2,500 for somebody uh, who just has a part-time job, and they still have to pay the gas on top of that, which is what, tanking up is about $100 a week if you're driving to post-secondary every day. So it's really a costly venture. Oh, yeah. And um, as I... As I understand it too, Mike, the no-fault model now that we have introduced in 2021 uh, places young drivers in the high-risk category and determines rates based on that rather than their actual driving record. So as you say, even if they have a clean record for a short time that they've been driving, they're still in the high-risk category, making their insurance rates a whole lot higher than than a lot of people. Yes, younger people may take greater risks behind the wheel. They don't have the same experience as adults, perhaps. But young people still need to be able to get to their jobs, get to their schools, get to other activities going in their lives. And as I say, they can't always be borrowing their parents' vehicles because quite often their parents need their vehicle to get around as well. So it's a a real dilemma. And I think it's a greater dilemma for people who live outside – an urban area, say in the suburbs, because the the transit service is not as good as say in downtown Vancouver or downtown Victoria. It's just simply not the case. And anybody would agree with me too. The buses don't run that often. Sometimes it's every 20 minutes, half an hour. Sometimes it's on the hour in, in really suburban locations. So it's a real dilemma for a lot of people in, in my position, other parents in this position with, with young kids sort of making that step from, uh, high school into post-secondary. And, uh, you know, as I say, it's the, it's the cost of post-secondary. It's the cost yeah. of a vehicle. It's the cost of insurance and it's the cost of gas. And, and at a time mm. like this where everything's going up, it's difficult for a lot of people. Right. Speaking of CKNW reporter Janet Brown, excellent summary of the issue, I think, Janet. And, you know, my own family are in a similar situation. I got two boys. My oldest is 20 years old. You know, he's got his license. He would like to get a vehicle. But man, oh, man, 4100 bucks for insurance, potentially. I mean, this is a deal breaker for a lot of young people. Now, when you talk to the government about this, we'll say, well, hang on a second here. They're actually paying less than they did in the past. Let's have a listen to Mike Farnworth here, the Solicitor General. He's the Minister for ICBC, and here's what he has to say. Have a listen. They do pay more than Saskatchewan and Manitoba, uh, but compared to the old system that used to be in place, uh, they pay significantly less. And in fact, they were the biggest beneficiaries in lower insurance rates uh, once we move to enhanced care. Okay, so he's saying to young people, what are you complaining about? Your rates actually went down. You might be paying through the nose, but you're still not as much as you did before. Now, it was interesting to hear him talk about Saskatchewan and Manitoba there, Janet, because this followed a report from Ernst & Young that took a look at comparative 
rates between provinces. And this is interesting because in Saskatchewan and in Manitoba specifically, the rates for younger drivers significantly lower than in British Columbia. And one of the reasons is that they will take into account in, in those provinces, not only the risk profile of a young driver, but your actual driving record. So, for example, the kid that you just described who's paying 4100 bucks for his insurance, does he have any accidents or does he got a clean record? Clean record. All yeah. of those uh, costs that I outlined, they're all clean driving records because, first of all, they haven't been driving for very long, but well, yes, yeah, they all have clean driving records. And I think sometimes, Mike, it's, it's good to make comparisons from province to province, but in some ways, in some ways, it's apples to oranges. Manitoba is quite rural for the most part. You know, uh, kids here have to drive a long ways to get to post-secondary. Uh, you know, sometimes that's not the case maybe in Manitoba. You have to look at, you know, drill down and really maybe get all the facts. And, and maybe we're paying a little bit less, but you know what? A little bit less. It's still yeah. very, very high for a lot of people. $4,100 for a kid who yeah. is trying to go to school and only working part-time. And here by comparison, Mike, uh, for myself, I'm only paying 1800 in insurance. And yeah. yes, I have a clean driving record and have been driving for decades, but I have a newer vehicle than this kid, and I'm only paying $1,800, and I don't have to make that commute to UBC every day. Okay. You know? And I don't have to go to my sporting activities, et cetera. So, okay. yeah, it's, it's really difficult. Right. So many people would listening to this would say, well, hang on a sec. When you're talking about a young, young people, especially young men who are probably at a, a riskier driver profile, they should pay more because when you are young and dumb, you know, you will take risks and you get better as a driver as you go forward. I mean, you as a reporter, I know you've covered lots of stories of tragic accidents involving young people behind the wheel. So, you know, is there a reasonable argument that if you are a young person, you should pay more? I don't know, Mike. I think that's putting everybody in the same box. Uh, one yeah. of these young men that I was describing, he, he's so careful, I'd probably give him a ticket for going too slowly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and there's a lot of reckless uh, 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds on the road, too. I don't think it's fair to lump everybody into the same box and say, in general, young men are this or that. I don't think that's fair. There's a lot of young women that are also reckless. There's a lot of 20-year-olds that yeah. are reckless. And to just put that on our young people, I really don't think that's fair because and I'm just speaking uh, from what I know about the young people I know that, you know, circulate in my life. Uh, th I just don't think that's fair to say that. Okay. Janet, I love, how, I love the information you've collected on this. I think it's really interesting. Thanks a lot for coming on today to talk about it. My pleasure. Anytime. Thank you, Mike. Let's talk about the rise of vigilante groups in many B.C. communities. We've seen a spike in violent crime, homeless encampments in many communities, a lot of street disorder, untreated mental illness and drug addictions on the street. This is not just happening in Vancouver. This is happening in many cities and communities around the province. And a lot of citizens are fed up and they're taking action themselves. These citizen action groups that have been set up in many communities say they're going out, they're trying to recover stolen property. This We have seen this end tragically in Nanaimo, where a local businessman was shot last weekend. He remains in hospital, police still investigating that shooting, near an encampment in Nanaimo. 
I've got Mike Bernier standing by. Have a listen to this here first. This is Dwayne Dilworth. He is with Citizens Take Action in Dawson Creek. Here he is speaking to me on yesterday's show. Tons of success. We've recovered over a million dollars on stolen property. Whoa. Whoa, a million dollars. Wow. How do you do that? It's just a whole bunch of eyes. uh, Lots of eyes out there see lots of things and reported. And it's quite an active group. There's sometimes up to 50 different units out patrolling. He's got 50 different units out on patrol looking to recover stolen property. He says they've recovered more than a million dollars worth of stolen items there in the Dawson Creek region. Why is this happening? Why do citizens feel they have to take this upon themselves? Where is Where are the police? Let's check in with Mike Bernier now, Liberal MLA, Peace River South. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Mike, thanks for coming on today. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, Mike, what do you think about these groups? I mean, this is, we've seen these in several communities where these citizen groups now are saying they're taking action. What do you think of that? Well, you know, I guess the first thing I have to say is I've met with a lot of these groups, especially the group here that's set up in Dawson Creek, and and they're just frustrated as heck because they tell me they wish they never had to do this to begin with, uh, but they feel that they're they're not being listened to. Uh, with the catch-and-release program, they're just being frustrated. Uh, they know who the criminals are. They report them to the police. And look, I understand the police have to follow uh, the law. They have to follow due diligence. They have to have warrants. They have to do all the inspections. Uh, but what's happening right now is it's right underneath everybody's noses. And in a lot of these communities, people know who they are. And frankly, people are saying enough's enough. And they just they know where the stolen truck is or the generator or the uh, the equipment. And they just go and retrieve it themselves because they feel, you know, that's uh, the fastest way to get results. Yeah, Dwayne Dilworth told me yesterday about how they've recovered stolen trucks, stolen snowmobiles, trailers, industrial equipment that has been stolen. They have a a wide network of people who are on the lookout for this stuff. The Mm -hmm. people will talk in the community like the word gets around so they can find they can find this stuff. They know where some of this stolen property is located. And he also told me that they are trying to work with the police. So if they get information that there's stolen property on a certain site, they will go to the RCMP. They'll go to the police and say, look, this is what's happening. And sometimes the police will investigate. So do you find that, like in your experience talking to these groups, are they working cooperatively with the police or are the police, do the police, are the police happy that they're, they're, they're doing this or are the police asking them to like stand down? Well, I think it's a little bit of both because you know, I've, I've talked to some of the RCMP. Obviously, more eyes on the road uh, are better, but they have to remember, as you announced at the beginning, uh, the tragedy that happened in Nanaimo. Yeah. And so I'm hearing that from the RCMP, too, saying, look, we cannot, cannot have people take law into their own hands. Uh, otherwise, you know, tragic situations can happen because we're dealing with a criminal element that, frankly, doesn't care. And we have law-abiding people here who are getting frustrated. So uh, we've got Facebook pages, we've got email groups, we've got uh, WhatsApp groups. So something gets stolen in town. Within five minutes of somebody knowing, there's 100 people in Dawson Creek that know about it, and they're keeping their eyes open. It gets reported to the RCMP. 
But, you know, they can't be everywhere. And, and frankly, uh, a lot of times these concerned citizens are finding the things, uh, the trucks or whatever is stolen uh, before the RCMP have even had a chance to hit the road. Yeah, this is one of the things that surprised me a little bit in my discussion with Dwayne yesterday from Citizens Take Action is just how many people are involved in this group. Like he said, this is a a large active group. They've got chat groups. They're communicating with each other. They're on patrol. I mean, man, it sounds like they're doing the work the police should be doing. But are the police like are the police understaffed? Well, I think the biggest problem is that a lot of times the RCMP's hands are tied and they're frustrated. I I guarantee they're frustrated with this, the catch and release system where they do the work. And yes, they have to follow all of the processes. And sometimes as frustrating as it is, in order to have enough evidence to take something to court, to crown, to press charges, they have to have all of their I's dotted. We've all heard those frustrating stories where, Um, You know, somebody's caught. We know it's the person that stole everything, but because of a loophole, uh, they're released 15 minutes later and no charges are pressed. And, and, you know, frankly, we're getting people that are just saying this system needs to be changed. We need to have resources for RCMP, direction to our crown and our judges, uh, because, you know, I am afraid that more people are going to get hurt. We're not trying to encourage this. We don't want to encourage this. We want... We want the RCMP to have the tools to do the job that they are paid to do and that they sign up to do. Uh, So, you know, I I don't want to put the blame completely on the RCMP either uh, because of the system that they're in. Uh, But again, uh, we've seen huge success with these community groups who, frankly, just they just want their belongings back if they've worked hard to have. Okay, speaking to Liberal MLA Mike Bernier, and with your point with regard to people getting hurt, this is the concern. And if we go back to just a, a little over a week ago in Nanaimo, I mean, this is an eerily similar situation that's going on in some of these other communities. You got a local businessman, Clint Smith. This is a guy who runs an auto repair shop in Nanaimo. His place has been broken into, his stuff has been ripped off many times. And he says that, or his friends say that they knew that some of the stolen equipment was down in this encampment in Nanaimo. They had gone down there before and they had recovered stolen property. So once again, a group of them go down there. We're going back to last weekend mm-hmm. and, and this poor guy ends up shot 22 caliber rifle shot in the stomach and ends up in surgery in an induced coma. He's still in hospital no arrests. And when I spoke to Dwayne Dilworth about this yesterday from Citizens Take Action, this group in Dawson Creek, I asked him about that, how his people feel after they see someone get shot doing this type of activity. And here's what he had to say to me, then I'll get your thoughts. There's always some concern. Like I say, safety of our members is the utmost. But uh, when is enough enough? We can't afford to keep losing our property to property crime, and uh, before long, we won't be in business. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these guys who are involved in this are running businesses that are being targeted by thieves. I mean, this was the case with Clint Smith. I mean, he's trying to run a small business, an auto, an auto repair garage, and you know, you can't, you can't run your business if your tools and your equipment are being stolen. So is that what you're hearing too? Like a lot of this is like local business people who are upset that their stuff is being stolen, Mike. 
Yeah, a good a good portion of this is actually uh, in our business community. They're being targeted. You know, they 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 shutter their doors in the evening and go home, and then they come back to work the next day. And windows have been broken, things have been stolen. In fact, we even had uh, last week. I, I shouldn't laugh, but it is kind of comical that right in the middle of town in our mall, a pickup truck just drove right through the front windows of our mall, hooked up to the ATM machine and dragged it out and dragged it down the street for many blocks. Um, you know, people saw this, people phoned the RCMP. Uh, it's my understanding still nobody's been caught or charged on that one. Uh, so it's just happening in broad daylight. As you heard from Dwayne, people are angry, people are frustrated, uh, and they're just wanting this system to be fixed because it is costing uh, our business community literally millions of dollars. And a lot of this stuff, we need to remember, it's happening so often. They're no longer being covered by insurance. So it's coming out of their pockets. Oh, yeah. When it comes oh. out of your pockets, you can only stay in business so long. Yeah, but... Okay, let's go back to the safety issue, though, because this is an absolute tragedy, what we have seen here in Nanaimo with with this man shot. And, you know, we don't want to see any any more of this. So what would be your message to these groups? I mean, w- would you encourage them not to be doing this? I mean, you just heard Dwayne Dilworth saying, well, you know, we're, we're always concerned about the safety of our, our people. That's number one. But, man, you don't know what's... You go down to one of these encampments, you don't know what's going to happen. Well, exactly. And and so I've never tried to encourage them to take the law into their own hands yeah. for that exact reason, because, you know, we don't want to see people get hurt. These these criminals really, I would argue, have no conscience. They don't care. That's why they're repeat offenders. They they're just targeting innocent people. And the problem is, it's the innocent people that will get hurt. So when I've talked to these groups, I've said, you know, you have an amazing network of concerned citizens that are uh, in communication the best thing I think a lot of people can do around the province, if when this is happening, is document the information, get descriptions, get license plates, get video footage. Everybody has a camera phone now. Get that information to the RCMP. Every little bit of uh, information they have uh, will hopefully uh, help put some of these people behind yeah. bars as long as we can uh, fix, uh, fix our system. Have you ever seen anything like this? Mike, you're a long-serving MLA. You've won a lot of elections up there in the piece. Like, Have you seen it? this bad and there's always been crime but is this the worst yeah i think we've always had a little bit of crime i I have never seen it like this before this is by far uh getting out of hand and you know it used to be the crime would happen under the darkness in the evenings and we wouldn't know and now it's just blatantly right in the middle of daylight it seems like these criminals know that nothing's going to happen to them uh so they just have that uh uh, ability of just doing it and knowing there's no consequences. So I, I have honestly never seen it this bad. And, you know, we need to fix this system because, again, uh, we don't want to see more people get hurt like in Nanaimo. And so we have to work together with our, our system. We have to put pressure on government to figure any tools we can uh, that need to be placed in our communities to help. Okay, well, the government says they are taking action. They say they've lobbied the federal government to change the criminal code to keep violent repeat offenders behind bars instead of letting them out on bail. And we're still waiting to see what Ottawa will do on that. Uh, We've heard from the government saying we're trying to get tougher on this. We're putting more resources into mental health and addiction because that's what's fueling a lot of this stuff on the street. Do Do you have confidence that that is going to make a difference, or do you think more should be done well right now i think the government's just making flashy announcements it feels because they're they're seeing and hearing the pressure 
what's happening around the province. Uh, I don't have any confidence that the government just saying it's going to happen, that it will happen. Uh, we need to be making sure this does get resolved uh, because, again, uh, more people are going to get hurt. And, yes, yeah. you know, we're trying to find supports for uh, people suffering with mental health or addictions issues. Uh, you know, we've been seeing some of the traumatic situations with people who are suffering in those areas uh, around our communities. Uh, but frankly, I'll say in, in Dawson Creek, uh, there's two different aspects. We do have some people on our streets that ha- are suffering with addictions issues or mental health with no supports. But those yeah. in our area, those people aren't the ones that are the repeat offenders and the career criminals. Those are the people that are suffering that we need to, as a society, uh, look for ways to help them. Uh, it's almost two different groups of people that uh, have to be targeted in separate ways. Mike, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's absolutely my pleasure, pleasure Mike. Uh, have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.